Merry Christmas. It's the seventh day of Christmas. Seven swans a swinging or singing day, a swinging swan. I hope everyone enjoyed the previous six days of birds. Um, it's great to be here um, with you. My name is Matthew, and uh, John and Jana are out of town, and so they, uh, they graciously asked if I would come, and I was so excited because I love being here with you all. I love this church, and I love your pastors very much. We're going to be looking at that gospel text today. Um, it's a very, uh, it's not one of the more known Christmas texts. You know, when we think about Christmas Bible texts, we think about like shepherds, or we think about a baby in a manger, or we think about Magi and the Star of Bethlehem. But we don't tend to think of the Simeon text, and yet it comes to us sort of at the end of the birth narrative. Beginning in chapter 3 of Luke, we're going to be in this whole other trajectory going forward. It's going to be suddenly, the language is going to change, the style is going to change. This is the end of these narratives around the arrival of the Messiah. And there's something about this text that I love so much because it feels very human. It feels like it has something in it that's sticky that you and I could attach to our lives today. It doesn't have to be this thing where we're waiting for a choir of angels to suddenly appear to us in a field. Like it could be something that actually affects what we're doing today, this season, and this year. This is, of course, also a turning point in our calendars. It's the last day of the year. A lot of us are probably looking forward to eating salad tomorrow and no more cheese. Although we have six more days, so you have to just push through a little longer and keep eating cheese. Um, we can stop on the 7th. But anyway, there's a, there's a lot of this time of year where we're making decisions about what do we want 2024 to look like? And maybe you're like me and you're looking back at 2023 and you're thinking, there were some good things, but there were some things that I would like to not do again. There were some ways that I lived that I would like to not repeat. And this is that time of year where we make those sorts of promises to ourselves resolutions. And so I think this text also gives us something really practical to hold on to, a practice and then also like a mindset that could potentially shape our 2024. So let's first of all look at the context of the text. We're in the temple. It's 40 days since the birth of Jesus. And according to the Mosaic law, the firstborn son, firstborn sons are very important in the Old Testament, remember? First in Egypt and Pharaoh, but then again, uh, ongoing, even livestock, firstborn son of livestock were always sort of put aside as like sacred in some specific way. And firstborn sons were to be presented in the temple to the Lord with a sacrifice. This had been going on for a very long time. And we know from this couple of facts, one, Joseph and Mary, they were good, devout Jewish people. They followed the law of Moses. Two, they were not middle class. Because if they were middle class or even more upper class, ruling class, they would have come with the Mosaic law, which was a sacrifice of a lamb, a sacrifice of a goat. That's what was meant to be presented with a firstborn son. But there was a stipulation in the law that said, good news, if you can't afford a lamb, because lambs are expensive, you can bring a couple of turtle doves, which are, I guess, a dime a dozen. And so you can bring a couple of turtle doves or two young pigeons, and that can be your sacrifice instead. And so this young family walks into the temple with two birds and a baby six weeks old. The temple is, is the glory of Israel. It was, it was the pinnacle. It was the center of power. It was the center of religious uh, fervency. It, it was everything that it meant to be a, 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 a Jew. And it was the place where not just the religious authority rested, but it was also the place where the civic authority rested in Israel. And so it would have been full of important powerful, wealthy people. 
And so it's not hard to imagine that in a space like this, you could imagine sort of like, you know, the capital of Washington, D.C. It's not hard to imagine that maybe in a room full of senators that a young, unimportant, poor couple carrying two birds might slip in with anyone, like no one noticing them whatsoever. Now, the reason the temple was so important to the Jewish people was not just because it was grand and it was lavish and it was beautiful. No, the reason it was so important was because a Jewish person believed that the, the temple was the locus of God's presence and power on the earth. It was the thin space where heaven and earth touched, which is why the temple and before the temple, the tabernacle were full of garden sim symbolism because it was a reenactment of Eden. It was the space where God and his people could come and walk together in the cool of the day. It was that, that thin of a space. Now, we need to understand something about glory, what it means to have the glory of God in a space. The glory of God, as the Hebrew Bible tells us, the, the word in Hebrew for glory is the word kavod. Can we say it together? It's fun to say in Hebrew. Let's say kavod. Now, kavod, is, it, it, it translated, translated glory, but it also means like the weight or the essence of something. It's the experience of the substance of a person, okay? So actually, you also have your own glory. It's just that the glory of the Lord is vastly superior to my glory and your glory. It is the experience of the essence, the substance, the weight, the gravitas, as the Latin would later come in and say, of what God is like. And it is a felt material reality to the people of Israel. In fact, when the temple was first constructed, and you might remember King David, you know, like the, the giant slayer, King David, who was uh, the great king, the man after God's own heart, also a broken man, an adulterer, a murderer, but a worshiper of God, the shepherd king. King David wanted to build this house initially for God. He had said to him, I'm going to build a temple for you, Lord. It's not fair. You're in a tent. I'm in a palace. That seems lopsided. And God's like, it might be. It might be. But you are not going to be the one to build my house for me. Your son will be the one to build my house for me. You, he says to David, I'm going to build your house. Your reign, your name, your dynasty is going to go on forever and ever. And of course, he's, he's referencing Jesus, who will be the son of David. But anyway, that's beside the point. He says, your son's going to be the one to build the temple. And sure enough, Solomon comes along and he does build the temple. And it is extravagant. It is incredible. It's, it's nicer than the, the Crystal Cathedral, if you remember that. It's, it's an incredible space that the whole nation of Israel rallies around and gives their finest materials and their finest threads and their finest dyes to make this a beautiful space. But it's just a space until Solomon dedicates the temple. And when he dedicates it, this is what we read happens. And as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord, the kavod of Adonai, filled the temple and the priests could not even enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down their faces to the ground and they cried out with one voice, He is good and his steadfast love endures forever. So the, the glory of God is a material thing. It's not just like God's, God's weight in essence is so, is so large that it actually the experience of the essence of God is, has a material presence to us, so much so that if it was filling the space right now, we wouldn't be able to get in the doors. It would, it would cover every square inch. There would be no space left. 
this is, the, this is the high point of Israel's history. They have the great King Solomon, the richest king, the wisest king. They have the temple, the glory of the Lord dwelling in the temple, the physical, material presence of God in spirit form somehow resting there. And of course, if you know the Old Testament, you know that everything from this point forward is just a straight downhill, like, and just hitting every rock along the way. Solomon's heart is quickly, he, he turns his heart away from God. It's not the women who turn Solomon's heart away from God. Solomon turned his heart away from God. I think we always throw women under the bus. He has a thousand people in his harem because he's insatiable. He worships all these idols. He practices all these things that are abominations. And God says, because of your faithlessness, Solomon, I will not be faithful to you as I was to your father. And the kingdom that I've given to you that was meant to be an endless eternal kingdom is going to split in half. And surely enough, Solomon's son split it in half. And then the rest of the Old Testament is just one train wreck of a person after another, with a few notable exceptions, but one train wreck of a person after another coming and driving the people further and further away from God. And the prophets, this is what the prophets are, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, the prophets show up on the scene and they're like, you've lost the plot. You've forgotten why we're here. You've forgotten about, you've forgotten about the Exodus. You've forgotten about God who parts away in the Red Sea. You've forgotten about the Lord, your God, who made the heavens and the earth. Return to the Lord with all your heart. Turn back. Circumcise your hearts, not your skin. Come back to the Lord and be repentant. And the prophet Ezekiel has a vision. It's one of the last prophets. And he says in his book, it's a very weird book. It's a very, it's, I mean, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like James Joyce Ulysses, but even weirder. And so he, if you can understand Ezekiel, you're a scholar. But he says at one point in, he says, I had a vision of the Lord in the temple. And the Lord was in the temple. The spirit of the Lord rested on the temple. And then he says, and then I saw the spirit leave. Now you can imagine what this would be like for a prophet who knows the story of the kavod of God filling the space materially to just watch it in a vision. And now it's just a space again. And shortly after this, they're taken away. Babylon comes in, captures them, takes them back to Babylon. Babylon is conquered by uh, Persia, Darius, king of Persia. He does this really politically savvy thing where he sends everyone back to their home territories to rebuild the temples that have been desecrated by Babylon. And the reason he did this is not because he's a devout, you know, you know, Yahwist. It's because he wanted to get the favor of all of, the, all of the conquered gods, okay? So he's just smart, just smart. So he's, he's go back and build the temple so that, so that Yahweh will be on my side too. And they go back and they build the temple. And we read about this in the book of Ezra. This is one of the final stories we have in the Old Testament. And then it's just silence for hundreds of years. One of the final stories we have. In Ezra chapter 3, we read, this is what happens at the consecration of the second temple. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple and the Lord... Of the, of the Lord, the priests in their vestments, it looked like us probably, they came forward with trumpets. And the Levites, the son of Asaph, came with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to God. And they sang, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. You remember those words? He is good. They're saying the same words. They got the right robes on. They're blowing the trumpets. It's the same space. They're singing the magic words. And the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundations of the house of God were laid. But many of the priests and the Levites, the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. Why? Why were they weeping? 
because it wasn't as impressive as the first temple? It wasn't. It wasn't nearly as impressive as the first temple. They didn't have the resources they had when they laid the foundation of the first temple. Why were they weeping? Because there's no fire this time. They're doing everything right, but God's not there. They did everything they were supposed to. 500 years later, a lower-class couple, a 15-year-old girl, if you can imagine that. I have a 15-year-old girl. A 15-year-old girl holding in her arms the Son of God, dressed as peasants, carrying birds, walking to a temple, and no one even notices except Simeon. He looks and he sees fire walking through the door. And that's what it means to be a Christian, I think. It means to be a person who can see fire when everyone else just sees a baby. Who finds that God is actually present in far more spaces than we would assume naturally. That he's right there in front of us. As uh, Elizabeth uh, Barrett Browning says, Earth is chock full of heaven and every bush of flame with God. So Simeon runs to this child, picks him up in his arms. What a moment. How mysterious it is that this baby had some, in some fashion created this man for this moment and then spoken to him through the Holy Spirit that he would see him. And he gets to pick up the one who had been holding him all his life and hold this one close. And that's what Christmas is. God comes to us vulnerable enough so that we can pick him up and in the process discover that he's holding us in fact. That we're not doing anything. And he prays. He, say, he says these words. He says, Lord, you are now dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all people. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Now, if you pray uh, the prayers of the book, uh, in the Book of Common Prayer, you, you know this prayer. This is called the Nunc Dimittis which is a permission to depart. I love it. It's, it's in the, the Compline prayers, the prayers that we pray as Anglicans at the end of every day. And I know a lot of us don't do that. We don't pray the hours. But if you're going to pray something, pray Compline. It's the best. These are some of the final words that Anglicans are invited to say every single night before we rest our head on the pillow. Lord, you've given me permission to depart because I've seen you at work. I've seen your salvation throughout the day. And now I can rest in peace for I know that you hold all things in your hand. When we pray this prayer, and by the way, this is a practice maybe to consider for 2024. When we pray this prayer throughout the year, what it does is it sharpens our vision to recognize that God is always moving around us. That there is fire everywhere. We just don't want to be people who miss it, right? I think a lot of the times the reason that our hearts grow grow numb, the reason why our vision fails, the reason why we struggle to have hope, the reason why we struggle to persevere is because we struggle to see where God is at work, and yet God is at work if we have the eyes to see. Lord, you've given me permission to fall asleep because I know that you are doing things. I know that you are moving. I know you are at work. So Simeon sees this. He sees this baby, and he sees fire. He knows God is here. But he also sees something else, which is that when God comes onto the scene of our life, our story, it's a disruptive appearance. That with the arrival of this baby is going to come division. And I don't like this, really. I, I I just want everyone to just get along, you know? 
there's enough division in our world right now. I don't, think, I don't think we need to be constantly drawing lines and dividing people and separating them based on whatever it is. But Simeon understands that one of the things that God does when he arrives on the scene is he actually does create those spaces between people because people will have very different reactions to him. He says, your presence here will be a sign of opposition and you will reveal the inner thoughts of people. Everyone's like, yikes. Now, I don't know if he understood what he was saying. I don't think he maybe understood that he was not only here to reveal the inner thoughts of, say, tax collectors and sinners, but he was also here to reveal the inner thoughts of the hypocritical religious elite. I don't think that maybe when he understood, like, this is for the falling and rising of many, that he understood that the ones who were going to fall were actually the so-called untouchable ones, the self-appointed religious elite. Meanwhile, the ones who are going to be, those who rise would be the ones that were irredeemable according to the culture. Prostitutes and publicans and Gentiles and Samaritans. That these were going to be the people to rise under this person's ministry. And that those who right now were at the top would be the ones who would topple down. But whether or not Simeon knows that or not, that's exactly what Jesus was here to do. If we have any doubt about that, we just need to read the first two chapters of Luke. This is the end of chapter, uh, of chapter 2. But Four times in Luke 1 and 2, there are songs that are sung, prophecies that are declared about this baby. And every single time, it's the same thing. You have come to raise up the lowly and to cast down the haughty. Because you are here, the proud will be humbled and the humbled will be uplifted. Which tells us something else about what it means to be a Christmas person, to be a person who lives in a visited world. A world in which God has come and made space in flesh among us. It means that not only do we see God in all spaces and have the capacity to do that, but we also need to understand that God is particularly present in certain spaces of suffering and hardship. That this is what he came for. Sometimes those of us who are comfortable, and I don't, any comfortable people here? Those of us who are comfortable tend to sort of minimize what it means for God to be here. And we turn God into a God who's just here to answer personal pleas or maybe help us find parking spots. As though, like, that's what it is to be in contact with the God of the universe. I just want to say, I think God is in your car when you're in a hurry. And you're like, I'm going to be late. I need a spot, God. God's everywhere. But he's especially in Gaza right now with millions of displaced people living in rubble. He is especially in the Sudan right now, where 15 million people, because of an economic collapse, are, exp are experiencing the worst humanitarian crisis in the world right now. He is especially with those who are trying to find shelter on these cold streets at night. That's where God is. That's what he came to do. And his presence in those spaces is not just some general spiritual presence. It is physical presence taken up by his people who go to those spaces. That what it means to be a Christmas person is not to simply be like, how cool is it to live in this world and then to kind of go about my business? But it's to enter the spaces in which God came specifically to be a part of and to physically manifest that love. We just sang it. That we would love as we have been loved. That that love would be our ministry to the world. That we would be instruments of peace. Finally, the last thing about the story that I love. There's a lot of things I love about the story. But maybe the thing that is speaking to me the most at this moment is... Um, 
is how, how, how amazing it is that Simeon and Anna had been waiting this long and they hadn't given up. I am not a very patient person. And I've been through enough hard things in the last few years. And when it doesn't feel like God is responding quickly enough, sometimes I can really lose heart. And what I really mean by that is I can lose faith. Like I can lose hope. I can stop praying. I can start to think, does it really matter? And to be an 84-year-old person who was still waiting for the consolation of Israel, even while Roman forces were occupying and desecrating the temple, even still, after generation after generation after generation, hundreds of years of silence since the last prophet said, thus says the Lord, hundreds of years since the Maccabean Revolution, the last sort of shot, and to still hope. I'm finding in this season that I'm in right now, hope is a choice. It's easy to feel weighed down by the, by the circumstances and to think there's not a lot to hope in right now. The signs are going in the wrong direction. But Christians, Christmas people, say, nevertheless. That what it means to be a Christian is to hold on to hope defiantly against the circumstances and the odds. To not let the things of this world and the things that are weighing you down right now, whether they're personal, whether they're global, to tear your heart, to bring it down. I love how David says somewhere, maybe it's in Psalm 119, he says, my soul clings to the dust. I'm like, yeah, that's what my soul does too. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word, he says. He's like, I know my tendency is to go down. I need you to fill me with faith. And no matter where you are in the journey, old, young, new to Jesus, exploring Jesus, having been around Jesus and followed him for decades and decades, no matter where you are, let me just tell you, the good news is, is that the place where you are right now is where that eventuality begins. You don't become an 84-year-old person who in the moment suddenly becomes a hopeful person. Like Simeon had made that decision a thousand, thousand times to push down the doubt and to hold on to the hope. And that's what you and I are invited to do. We're invited, I think, in the year to come. It's going to be a rough year. Can we just, it's probably going to be a rough year. I don't know. Lots of big things are going to happen, and there's going to be a lot of division over stupid stuff, and it's going to hit our families, and it's going to hit our churches and our communities, and there's going to be a lot of reasons for us to be discouraged. Not to mention, you also are going to have your own personal stuff that you're going through. You're going to be not have enough money, and your body's going to fall apart, and I'm sorry, it's just going to happen to all of us. We're going to have a rough year. I speak it over you. But how do we, in the midst of all that, become people who hold on to hope, who do not let go of the thought that God is coming to console the world? That we don't need to, we don't need to forsake that in order to live in the space we're in. We can live in the space we're in and still fight to believe that we're living in a good story.